All right. We are at the National Museum of African American History. We are waiting in line to enter the history galleries, which are three floors below where we are right now. It is so crowded in here. They're so black. This is such a black space. It's all black people and some white people. <laughs> this is after spending the morning seeing the Obama portraits at the National Portrait Gallery. As well as some other really amazing portraits like um, Russell Means, Toni Morrison, Toni Morrison Fred Hampton. Oh, yeah. We were really surprised by the curation of the section of the portrait gallery that included the Obama portrait because the Obama portrait faces a section of the gallery called the struggle for justice which includes portraits of all these incredible racial justice and feminist leaders throughout the last century um, so already it's been a very moving morning and now we're in this long line waiting to go into the the um, the hull below and we'll report out once we are on the other side queer science fiction writer, a theologian, a mother of dragons, and a healing justice facilitator for social movements living in rural Minnesota. And I'm Adrienne Marie Brown, author of Emergent Strategy, co-editor of Octavia's Brood, writer, facilitator of Black liberation work, auntie extraordinaire, doula, and pleasure activist living in Detroit. And this is How to Survive the End of the World our podcast about learning from apocalypse with grace, rigor, and curiosity. We're back. And we're back. <laughs> and we're in the same room. Where it all began. So That's exciting. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, technically it began in Zach's apartment in Detroit. True. House. Gosh, my memory is... Anyway, <laughs> so <laughs> here we are. And it is... The midst of summer, we have spent the day swimming in a lake. Oh, and Bran is <laughs> oh, whining you know at the door. We'll just leave it because that'll just be one of the noises we deal with. Okay. I guess he's going to do that. So Autumn has a dog who expresses himself with... I think I should let him out. Okay. You explain it while I do that. All right. <laughs> so Bran is a dog that they found at a shelter who has significant anxiety issues. And one of the ways he expresses himself is by whining to go in and out of the door. Um, probably, I'd say, 30, 30 to 40 times a day. <laughs> And then when he gets outside, he chases things that he's unable to catch. And then he comes Truly back and cries. To. The I don't yeah. think I've ever. No. He, he is one of those dogs who will find um, parts of carcasses and bring them back to us as yes. gifts and yeah. leave them on the, you know. So I've had to handle many a deer leg that oh. just shows up on the porch. And yes. I have to like freehand it basically to oh. find a place to put it. Um, but he Country doesn't bring out anything that he has killed himself. No, because that doesn't happen. Yeah. But he means well. He does mean well. And yeah. he's very protective and he just wants to be loved. So I'm, I'm learning to love him. 
a lot of, I had a lot of this summer, actually. One of the themes of this summer for me, we're about to get into what is this summer been? One of the themes of this summer for me has been me like talking about my dog to people and then people saying to me, so what's going on in your relationship with your dog? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's so funny because even when I try to tell, like I have several friends in my life who are like, you know, queer dog owners, which is like a different level of dog love. As far mm-hmm. as I can tell, like mm-hmm. there's something that happens where it's like this dog loved me when like no one understood who the hell I was. Mm-hmm. It's like a deep thing. And so I'll try to say to them like, yeah, my sister has this dog and like, you know, I'll be complaining and they'll be like, the dog needs love. The dog needs love. <laughs> like they're just like, love. <laughs> exactly. I was like, never mind. You're not giving me the kind of support I need. <laughs> what about me? What about my needs as a human being who's controlled, control of this no, dog? No, really. I mean, and I, I don't mean to derail us too much, but I did have this experience <laughs> early in the, early in the summer of our dog, our dog also chases um, vehicles up and down the road at times, oh, right. uh, particularly the mail truck and oh, the garbage truck. Yeah. And so, um, <laughs> At some point early in the summer, a postal service worker called the police on our dog and the sheriff came Mm -hmm. to my door. And and that, of course, is an anxiety inducing experience anyway on a number of levels. But we got into a conversation about what was going on with the dog. And I sort of I started rattling off my like usual um, sob story about how, oh, he's a rescue and he has all these behaviors and we just can't train him out of them and and she just kind of put her hand up and she said I'm gonna stop you right there (laughs) there's nothing that a rescue can't learn to do that a dog that hasn't been through trauma can learn to do Ooh, (laughs) she Mm -hmm. was like and I just stop with the excuses young lady (laughs) and she just talked to me for like 10 minutes about what I needed to do differently she was like every everything you do with your dog is a training opportunity Oh wow! And she's like, like, "Let me train you, honey." Like unraveled all of my assumptions that I had been bringing to the table about Bran and whether he could ever learn to be a better behaved dog. And I was like, "All right, let me just sit here and like receive this lesson from this sheriff." Sometimes the universe (laughs) comes in a weird country uniform. Exactly. So, here we are. it's so late summer. It's, it's late it's, summer. It's August 14th. Yeah. And we just celebrated um, my oldest nibbling's birthday, your oldest child's birthday. Finn just turned 10 years old. So a decade of parenting. He is officially a decade. I found myself over the last few days um, often regularly saying to people a decade ago, blah, 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 blah happened. And it's, it's pretty intense to have that as an actual marker of time passing in in my entire life, like yeah. of the the things that were a reality before Finn yeah. was here, and and the fundamental ways that he has changed me as a person. Oh yeah, you know, it's been really beautiful, actually. No, and you know, it's been great to get to be here with him for this birthday, and just sort of hear like who Finn has become, who Finn is becoming, and what a mature, lovely, sensitive soul that you brought into the world and oh, he really has changed so everyone and our whole family and and he, he changes everyone he meets he also. does like he, he does. surprises people with his his gentleness and his attention and his like brilliance brilliance and just sparkling compassion and empathy mm-hmm. and like he's just a really um total magical unicorn of a person and I'm so lucky to be his mom like I love so him. lucky yeah um, 
so before Finn's birthday, we had like this packed summer. There's been so much going on. And the time that we took away from doing this podcast, it was hard for me. I really like missed doing the podcast with you, actually, I, I have to say. <laughs> like, I'm like so happy we're back. And I'm, like, I've got so many things to talk about. Um, so one of the things that we did this summer was we took a sistercation, a sister trip together, which we've done a couple times now. And we actually have like, I'd say some pretty solid like sister practices. So whenever we get together, just generally, like if the family gets together, we do these things called sister check-ins where we will sit and like ask other people to take care of the kids and kind of take care of the world around us so that we get quality time to check in with each other, which we started doing a, a few years ago after a few visits like that went explosive and we were like why does this keep happening and I was like oh it's because we don't know enough about where we are right now yes. so whenever we get together now we block off that time usually about an hour and a half at, at minimum you often a lot more than Three that four hours usually. and <laughs> then we take takes. turns right yeah. it's like each one of us just gets to say here's what's going on right now mm-hmm. and here's what's happened kind of in my life since the last time I saw you and it's always so precious. And then we added, um, I think it was while I was in Costa Rica was the first time we did this. Like I went on a sabbatical and part of it was in Costa Rica and I invited you guys down to visit me there. And we just had a week of swimming and talking and cooking and resting. And mm. I feel like it was really, really Being naked, like the entire time. I know mm-hmm. naked with like monkeys swinging around us. And just and like iguanas everywhere. Yeah, and I don't think we'd ever really been naked around each other before that. That was Not kind like of that. like really unique was like <laughs> experience. Very, like we are adults experience. Exactly. <laughs> it was like, this is the best thing that adults can do basically is like be naked in right. the sun. Right. So now you may hear the sounds of Bran eating behind us Brand because he's determined to be a part of this podcast. Yes, mm-hmm. you are. Um, So this trip, we looked at the schedule for the summer. We realized that Beyonce and Jay-Z were doing a tour on the run, too. On the run. And it felt so, it sounds just like that. Mm -hmm. And it felt. That's exactly what happened. (laughs) That's what happened. (laughs) We were like, like, well, I feel like the concert was mostly us being like, I love her. I love her. And he's cool, too. I love her. I love her. He's doing good. I love her. And basically, like, did he just ask all of us for forgiveness? Good job. Good job. Good job. forgive you. Yeah. I was like, the least you can do is ask. (laughs) Like, um, But yeah, so we were like, well, we have to be there. We have to go together. We had gone previously to the formation tour together. Mm -hmm. And that was amazing. And so I was like, let's do this one. So we all flew into D.C. because that was like the best location where the three of us could align. And our sister April was like, oh, you're coming to D.C.? Hold on. We're going to make a day of this. We're going to make an event of this. And so she booked us um, tickets to go see the Obama portraits at the National Portrait Gallery and then to go see the National Museum of African American History and Culture. And it was incredible. And so... That's the main thing that we wanted to share back with you all um, because it really feels like the museum particularly feels like, oh, this place is actually all about black apocalypse and Mm -hmm. how we have survived apocalypse in the U.S. experience or U.S. context. Mm -hmm. Um, So I just want to share a little bit about what it was like to be there. And it was it was really interesting to have the experience of both museums in the same day. So we... Lay you down. know, we went to, Adrian is trying to get Brand to lay down. Sit. He will. He'll, he'll find Sit. his way down to the ground. Great. Um, lay. Lay down. Brand, lay down. Um, 
Right. He's, he's a large dog also, so he wants to fit himself into small places. Um, so we began the day with um, first going to the National Portrait Gallery, and we were prepared to see the Obama portraits. I think what we weren't prepared for was the gallery that sits opposite of where uh, Barack Obama's portrait is um, situated. So, you know, when we first walked into the museum, we decided to go directly to the presidential portrait gallery to find Barack Obama's portrait. And we just like whizzed right by all of the white men. Um, <laughs> you know, we sort of took a brief look yeah, at the yeah, like, like Kennedy portrait. And we were like, oh, wow, that one's yeah. all like abstract and cool. And <laughs> um, but, you know, we were just like zooming right through. We knew where we were trying to get to. Um, and and of course, the you know, the the portrait of Barack Obama is enormous and um, sits on a wall unto itself with like a um, a roped space where people can can stand in line to get up to the portrait and then take selfies with it. Mm -hmm. um, and it you know it really just it glows in its own light. I yeah, mean, it's, it's an incredible. Piece anyone of who has seen the images of the portrait, it was a portrait um, created by Kende Wiley, and um, who is a really famous um, black portrait artist. Um, and very much the portrait is very much in the style of the types of portraits that he does you yeah. know situating the black body against these um hyper Fertile. colorful yeah. natural landscapes where the um where the the landscape is like very much interacting with the body yes. the, the physical body that's in it inside yeah. it so you know the the like vines of ivy and flowers are sort of growing up around yeah. barack obama's legs and um, and he's sitting in this very like attentive posture, sort of leaning forward, looking directly into the eye of the viewer, yeah. um, giving exactly the kind of tension that I'm sure each of us would like to have from Barack Obama and which <laughs> Adrian actually has had from Barack Obama. <laughs> I was like, interestingly, yep, that's what he like, looks like yeah, for real. That's what he looks like in <laughs> person when, when you're sitting across from him at the dinner table <laughs> at the foundation gala dinner. Oh my God. <laughs> you know, well, and you know, it was interesting to see in the context of like this political moment is that there, you know, it's like all of these different, you know, white men and these portraits with nothing, like no, no sign of life in the picture with them. Mm. And then to have Barack Obama in the picture framed as like, this was a time of growth and life. Like, it just looks like it's saying something about the time that he created as well. Mm. And now to be in this place where it's like, oh, it's all falling apart. And, you know, I don't <laughs> hold with any like, um, like, I don't withhold any critique of Obama or what he was up to in office or right. that he did, like, some magic, which I don't think should be expected of a president anyway. But I do think it was really – it's really interesting how we view him and how we must view him given the context we're in now where it's, like, at the at the bare minimum, he gave some semblance of normalcy, of, like, moving ahead, of, like, we are progressing towards the future – and now it just feels like, oh, and we are in a political, like, slipping way down a hill that's, like, covered in gravel and just right. falling all the way back. Right. He gave us a sense that, like, you know, I, I remember talking about this um, on a panel, actually, at the Brecht Forum when he was when he was still running for office. And it was during the primary, so he hadn't yet won uh -huh. the, um, the nomination. And he was still in the running with Hillary Clinton and talking about, like, you know, regardless of the politics that a particular candidate is espousing, it signals something to the country as a whole and 
um, signal something about the country as a whole if like two of the most promising candidates are an African-American man and a white woman, right? And that like, and I think that that signal kept beaming throughout the eight years of his presidency in spite of all of the horrifying things that happened under his leadership. There was still this like signal beaming that was saying like, there's movement happening here. There's like a type of movement that's happening here because of the fact that this person and this body is occupying this office and we've consented to that. And I think it's true that like having someone who I think that you've um, very accurately referred to like, you know, Donald Trump in, you know, uh, a different era 150 years ago would is he's the epitome of a slave slave owner, a plantation owner. And like, um, so having, that body in the office signals something completely different about like what's actually happening underneath the surface to the country. Um, So yeah, it does, it does feel like the portrait really captured that. And then like, so we did our thing. We were like, we walked up, we, each of us took turns like taking selfies with the, um, with the portrait. And then we also assisted the guy who was standing in line behind us, like to take his picture Um, and it was beautiful just seeing all of the people, even just in that line who were, who were there to see the portrait and how, how overwhelming it was and how emotional it is for everybody to, to be with the portrait, including like ahead of us in line was like a young black boy who was like maybe nine or 10 years old. And, and there was a, it was really awesome to watch the like moment of his guardian, like taking a picture of him with the portrait and. And and then and then we you turn around and behind like literally like there's the whole portrait gallery of the presidential portraits are like sort of they're hung on walls sort of facing each other and then you reach the end where the Obama portrait is and it's on a wall facing a different gallery yeah. and the gallery it's facing is called the struggle for justice yes. and it's full of portraits of like revolutionary political leaders throughout American history, like feminist leaders, Black Panther (laughs) leaders, like um, indigenous leaders. Like there's a Russell Means portrait. There's Muhammad. Yeah, there's like, um, there's, yeah, I mean, it's like, like so many people who have actually been a part of the fabric of change and transformation in all of the most important moments of like, of, movements for justice in the history of this country and I was like I just I know I turned to y'all and I was like who is curating this museum exactly (laughs) I was like this stuff is dope like and they were gorgeous I mean it was amazing and then downstairs well first then we'd go up to see Michelle and our beloved Michelle Obama's portrait was in a gallery where it's like her, Toni Morrison, Beyonce. <laughs> like it was just like, I'm sure there were other people in there, but all I mm-hmm. saw was like dope ass black women. <laughs> right. It was just like, right, right. This also feels appropriate. And I thought that portrait was gorgeous. Oh, um, yeah. And, you know, it was the one that I was like, it really stuck with me. Like I was like, oh, I want to. I want to see this more often. That's the one we all got mugs for. We were like, we yes. have to have this. We definitely hit up the gift store <laughs> at the gallery at the end, and we all got the mug with the Michelle Obama portrait on it and the magnets with the Barack Obama portrait on it. It was and so... And postcards. Well, 
Yeah. <laughs> but I want to also say, I can't remember now the name of the artist. There's an artist, there's another room on the ground floor of that gallery that I think everyone should see oh, where yes. these, these portraits, and I'll try to find the name, we'll put it in the description, but I think it was Thomas something, but basically these portraits where it looks like the old white male portraits, but it look, the way they've been rendered is it's like they're por- painted on canvas that has then been pulled back, and underneath those portraits are portraits of black women um, who, or indigenous women, or indigenous women, mm-hmm. who basically are part of the storyline, have been harmed, were enslaved, were um, you know raped mistresses or whatever of these white men, mm-hmm. and that to me was like, whoa, this is in the again. It was like the location. I was like, I'm not surprised that this art exists. It feels like art that needs to exist, like must exist. Right. And when I saw it, I was like, this makes so much sense. But the fact that it's in the National Portrait Gallery felt like a move that I was like I again I want to know who the curator is we should just find out who the curator yeah. is <laughs> like, we should find out and whoever you are curator at the National Portrait Gallery you're killing it, you're killing it. keep doing what you're doing it's we know that it must not be easy to be doing what you're doing no and, and to do it at this time mm-hmm. and I just want to say I was so excited by the flood I mean it was tons of people bringing their kids like all kinds of parents of <laughs> all kinds of backgrounds bringing their kids to see the Obamas yeah. mostly so that was cool and then we went over to the National Museum of African American History and Culture. And that space, I mean, coming up on it from outside and just, it's like the Washington Monument is there and then it's this museum that, that looks, looks like, like an, an upside down upside pyramid. Upside down pyramid, exactly. It's gorgeous. <laughs> Emerging That's from like the ground. and black and... I mean, it's a yeah. stunning building and the lines are like, off the chain in every direction which is like I think would be frustrating if you didn't have good tickets to go ahead and get in but for me I was just like enthralled I was like look how many people are coming to see our history and it has been like non-stop like this since it opened it's just like you have to go out of your way and like really plan ahead to be able to get a ticket to get in there Mm -hmm. and that seems like really um again like one of those kind of responses to this political moment that is not it's like not on the surface. Like you wouldn't be like, oh, there's, you know, it's like it's different from like there's a ton of activists in the street or, you know, other things. But I'm like, mm-hmm. this is how a lot of people will express their dissent or express like what they care about is being like, we're going to go to D.C., but we're not going to necessarily go to all these other like random Smithsonian spaces. We want to go see the African-American History Museum. Exactly. Like that's where we want to. And I was amazed at the diversity of people in that space. Like it was a majority black um, group of people but there was a ton of other folks there and I think I felt like pleasantly surprised by that yeah absolutely. you know like I was just like good job y'all non-black people bringing your kids and bringing your families and your elders to this space like that just felt like and the number of like there were obviously there were a lot of school groups there but one of the other things that was really beautiful was to see the number of um of families that were a part of a family reunion. Trip. Yes. And so, um, with matching for, shirts, for those of you, those of you who are black, you'll know, you'll recognize this immediately <laughs> for people who are not black. You might not know about this particular element of like the black family reunion, yeah. but like it is, we get shirts. Oh, uh, we get shirts. <laughs> black families. We do, when we do family reunions, we do themed shirts for those reunions. And it was really beautiful to see, um, all these different black families that were p- as a part of their family reunion were doing this trip to the museum. Yeah, rolling like 20, 30 deep. Like, yeah, exactly. Yes. So the grandma's here, grandpa's here. Exactly. So yeah. we, you know, we walk into the space, we went through the metal detector, we walk in, and, and the main floor of the museum is this vast um, uh, lobby space. 
And it took us a minute to sort of get our bearings and understand, you know, what was supposed to happen next. And we were lucky to have April guiding us because she had actually been through um, half of the museum before. And one of the things that is important to know about the African-American History and Culture Museum is that it is vast and so so vast that we were only able to take in the first three levels of the museum in the five hours that we were there. Um, And there's three additional levels that, you know, the first three levels are all below ground and we'll get into a little bit more about why that is later. Brilliant. Um, And it is a brilliant, again, curatorial Mm -hmm. move on the part of the museum. And then there are three more levels that are above ground. Um, But, you know, we, we walked out the door at the end of the day and we were like, oh, clearly this would take two days to even... Begin. begin to actually take yeah. in the breadth of of historical content that's being presented here. Exactly. You know, it reminded me, like I kept having the feeling that I have whenever I'm in the Louvre, where I'm just like, oh. Whenever I'm in the Louvre. Uh, does that sound pretentious? <laughs> <laughs> okay. I just love that it's like, I've been to the Louvre multiple times. So many times. <laughs> well, because, <laughs> okay, well. When you grew up half your life in Europe, it's that's normal. Where you go. So don't. Get mad at us. Go ahead. No. <laughs> I grew up in Germany and Europe. Anyway, so, um, well, also I want to say if you have a mom who loves the Louvre, like that, like anytime we're in Paris, it's not like we're like, we're in Paris. Let's go to any museum. It's like, mm-hmm. no, we're in Paris. We're going to the Louvre. Right. What else can we also see on top of that? Right. And, but I feel that way whenever I'm in the Louvre, which is, this isn't even intended to see in a day. Like yes. this is supposed to take you a long time to take it in and to understand because there's that much you're dealing with. Mm-hmm. And so in, in that way, the overwhelming amount of content felt respectful of our actual history. Like it was like, we didn't cut corners. We didn't try to give you a best of. Yes. We're trying to actually like walk you through what this has been like and how how terrifying most of this history is. Like there's a huge, um, you know, it's an emotional journey. Like I'm like, oh, this is not a museum to take in lightly at all. So you go in and it's designed that way. So that's what I was going to say. I'm like, you go in, you start by going down. So like what you see above ground are like the three levels that we didn't even get to. What we got to was all the below ground levels. So you take an elevator and it's all super like, you know, you stand in a line, they take you down this big elevator and they're kind of like, once you go down, this is kind of it. Like there's a bathroom right when you get down there, but then you're just going to be on this journey through our history with like no respite for like three floors. So just be ready. And it's like, okay, that's a really interesting choice to make. Mm -hmm. And then you get off in the bottom and it's immediately like I am crushed against a ton of people in a narrow, dark space. And it's like, oh, y'all just went straight for the middle passage. Right. Like you're like, that's right. where you want us to start this experience. Oh shit. <laughs> that was it, I was like, oh yeah. Right. It's like, and it's 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 so clear that it is really intentional that yes. you feel completely crowded against each other yes. at the starting of the journey. And the images and mm-hmm. historical content around you are sort of setting the stage in that first when you first walk out of the elevator, it's setting the stage in the context for how the transatlantic slave trade came to be and what was happening in Europe that created the conditions for this to even be possible. Yes. God damn it. (laughs) You say lovingly. (laughs) So you go in. (laughs) It's funny. Okay, so you go in, you're down there, 
you're starting to see like what the context was in terms of resources, shortages, competition, the like sort of like colonial kickoff extravaganza, mm-hmm. right? And then the first thing that kind of struck me is that you see this wall and it's got all these names of each slave ship, the year that it existed, basically the year that it made its journey, how many slaves were on it, enslaved people were on it when the trip started, and how many were on when it landed. So the, it's kind of like the first data that you're taking in, in a way, is like, they were just reckless with everything, you know? Yeah. It was just like, oh, this was just cargo, like really cargo to y'all. And they kept track of it, you know? Yeah. Like it was like, yeah, we did this, and we loaded 340 um, people onto this and only 210 made it off and, and it's just like wall after wall after wall after wall and it like, was it was some of those numbers continue to feel so overwhelming to take in there was one ship particularly that had 749 souls I think at yeah. the start of its journey and only like less than 400 yes uh, at the end of the journey and it's unimaginable yeah to it's really not it's not possible even even with everything that I know and even with the ancestral journey that I have done it's actually not possible for me to imagine the conditions no and and then well and just to say there that felt like a really big part of why we wanted to come back and share it with you all and encourage you to go see it because it feels like, oh, this museum is a museum about apocalypse. It really is a museum about apocalypse. Like all of these people were gathered up from home, put onto these ships where tons of them died. And in a way that we really, you know, I don't think you can imagine. And I've been, I went to the slave museum in uh, Selma, Alabama, where they do another kind of enactment, reenactment, where they load you into what feels like a small ship. I mean, it's it's pretty brutal as an experience. And even with that, it's just like, and what it was was so far beyond that. Like the experience was so terrifying. And uh, and so it's just like, oh, right. Like this is in my ancestry. This Mm -hmm. is in your ancestry. Mm -hmm. And I feel like I want to talk a little bit about just the mood that started to come over folks as we're walking through because it's like oh right like you know you just I I, for me at least it was like you start looking around and seeing all the black people in the museum and we're looking at each other like we made it through this yeah like our ancestors were the ones who actually survived this experience yes um and there's no celebration really to it it's just like you know you don't it's not necessarily like yeah we made we're like you know it's just like Right. We carry this suffering. Like our the folks who survived saw all that, smelled all that, felt all that, lived all of that, and somehow still made it yes. to the shore. And in a way, it's the it's both the the awe of our ancestors who did survive it, and yeah. also just the incredible burden of knowing that that they that they did survive it and then had to live their lives yes. under whatever conditions they landed into, landed into yeah. having carried that several yes. months long, yeah. extraordinarily brutal experience in their bodies, yeah. just moving into more brutality, not knowing if freedom was what awaited them, not knowing if freedom would ever come again. Come again. And like, I was so shocked. One of the things they had in there was this, they have this set of shackles and they have basically adult shackles 
And then under that, they have child shackles. And then they had like a third set that was like a shackle, like almost like a um, like a pendant, like you would put on a necklace or something, but it was like a little piece that someone had made. But the child shackles, I mean, I think I stood there for 10 minutes, just like, like what it takes for any human to create something like that, to be like, I'm going to make a set of shackles for a child you know, to me, I'm like, if we ever wonder, like, oh, is there sickness? Is there evil in this world? Like, you know, like, I'm like, that's to me, this is like, here's one of our main indicators, you know, is it's not just what we would do to adults, but what we do to children. It's why this period of our history right now that we're living in is so brutal. Because it's exactly. like, this is a period where we're doing this where there children. are cages that are child sized and mm-hmm. that that's part of how we are structuring and upholding borders at this point in this country. So, yeah. <laughs> like, yeah and, I, and I feel like again in terms of the the incredible thought and compassion and empathy that the people who designed this museum had for yeah the future experience of the people who would be walking through it that that that, that room in the museum yeah is the only room where there's like just two things to look at yes so what's interesting about the museum is that the vast majority of the space in the museum, the walls are just covered with information, with images, with dates, with biographies of people, with um, physical items, with projections, quotations, quotations. But that room, the only things to see in that room are physical pieces of the actual ships themselves yes and the shackles yeah and just a few little pieces few little quotes uh from people's journals about what the the brutality that they witnessed in the journey um and a little just a teeny tiny bit of information about like how long those journeys may have lasted but yeah and there's a ramp that you walk through the room on that overlooks a vast darkness below. Yes. And it just, I I think that, you know, because I'm still processing the experience and all of the information that I learned inside of it. Yeah. In some ways, the, the things that I find myself orienting to most are, are those things that felt like the thoughtfulness and compassion and beauty of like the people who put this together, understanding that that room needed yeah, that room needed as little as possible in order to be able for us to be able to take it in. Exactly, that the those shackles, those child shackles and adult shackles next to each other couldn't be presented in a context where they were surrounded with other information to contextualize it. No. Because it's like there's no contextualizing no. this. There's no. really no contextualizing the brutality that this not just symbolizes but was because those are actual shackles that were actually around someone's body exactly like there's nothing um reproductive about it there's like this is this was an end of people's um, experience of getting to be human that was what the intention was right um so i mean we are like five seconds into the museum right so this is just like you walk in and you're just immediately like oh oh god you know like this is what we're going through and then i think what was also brilliant was they're kind of going through all of these different locations and kind of giving you a sense of 
here's what it was like. Here's what the Dutch were up to. Here's what the Spanish were up to. Here's what the French were up to. Like that this, that the slave trade was all of these different countries, all these different places. Like it really is like, we understand who's responsible for this. Mm-hmm. Here's who they were. Here's their names. Here's and who here's, profited. Here's who profited and here's what they were here's what we were laboring on and for here's what they were selling and making mm-hmm. and all of it, you know, I, you know, I'm like, I've been studying this my whole life and it was so important to me to be in this space and be like, and I'm still learning new information, like the research, the archival material. I mean, I just felt like such deep respect that someone loved us enough to go back and make sure all of this information was gathered and pulled together in one place. And it feels like one of those things where I'm like, you know, I felt this way too with the Holocaust Museum and, and several like spaces that I've gone to in Germany that was like Dachau and other places where they're like, we're not going to let this be forgotten. Right. Like this is actually one of the most important parts of your history and knowing who this country is. It felt like that, you know, I was just like, oh, y'all just went and gathered. You gathered it all together here yes. to make this case and make it clear. And I think one of the things that really that I found like touching in a very deep and disturbing way was um, how much record there was because of the profitability of mm-hmm. enslavement mm-hmm. and how little physical evidence yeah. there is left. Yes. You know, it was one of the interesting things to, it was interesting to see, okay, so the records themselves obviously are physical evidence. Yeah. And, and yet like, there's this point further along in the gallery where they're showing a particular type of fabric that was being produced through yeah. um, in, in, in a particular region. It was maybe like the Piedmont or something. And, and I looked really closely at the pieces of fabric and at first I was like, oh my God, I can't believe they have these. And then I look at the note and it's like, these are reproductions. And then I... Real, and I kind of looked up and looked around and realized, oh yeah, like there is a lot of this stuff that is all the things that they gathered. And then there is a lot of stuff that is reproduction by necessity because the nature of enslavement and production and disposability inside of the way that like yeah. the way that slavery made the development of capitalism possible is that so much of what our ancestors labored to create was then disposed of and so many things were lost in the process of quote-unquote progress so like even thinking about that point in the gallery where the shackles and the piece of the ship's hull are yeah. that like that piece of a ship's hull I can't even imagine what it took for them to get that yeah you know it's not like there's a shit ton of like slave era ships right. running around right? right and so it's like all of all of these things what actually has been passed down yeah. through families yep. and what it would have taken to protect those things and what it would have taken for those families to be willing to part with them right? for the sake of like having it be like historically available, viewable for a national audience. It's just interesting to consider why it took so many years for this museum to open yeah. and not just the bureaucracy of it, yeah. but also the process of just the incredible labor that would it would take to build enough trust with people's families yeah. for them to be willing to hand over any of these things. Well, and I too, I wondered about the political education process of it because I'm like, 
I feel like the main reason that m many of the records would have been kept would have been by people who are like, we're not ready to give up this system. We're not ready to give up these this property. And like, you know, we're going to hide this, but we're going to hold on to it as like, this is ours. You know, mm -hmm. this is our wealth. This is the history of our wealth. And, you know, I talk about this a little bit, but I, I, there's this group resource generation that does this money story exercise where they have people tell like where their money comes from. And I was just like, you know, these are not, these are recognizable names. These are names that we live in with and walk around with these slave owner names. Yeah. Uh, many of us have hold these names still to this day are like, you know, this is not a name from any continent. <laughs> this was the name that these slave owners had. Right. Yeah. So I want to say there was this, there's this whole period that's like, you're all in the dark and it's all closed in and they're showing you they're starting to you're starting to see stories so that's the other thing that I got really excited by was like even back in that period of time there were so many folks who were finding ways to get their stories documented yes um that were like some writing them themselves and we know some of the famous ones who've written them themselves but there were even there were so many more than that that I mm -hmm. saw mm -hmm. and then there were um stories that folks had dictated or told someone else and had them gathered. And then there was like um, newspaper ads and stuff that, that told their, told on themselves, right? Where it's just like, right. here's newspapers where people are looking for runaway slaves and right. looking for the their property. Um, and, you know, inside of each of those things, it was just like, I kept coming back to like, each of these pieces is someone's whole life story. Mm -hmm. And there's so many lives that were caught up in this industry and caught up in this horror and this genocide. Mm -hmm. um, and then you come out, I think it was really dope how they, the first part of it is just this, this horrific act, like the horrific act of the Middle Passage. Mm -hmm. And then it's like the doors open up and you come into this huge space, which is actually the majority of the rest of the three floor experience is kind of happening in relationship to this huge open atrium space. Mm -hmm. And then the justice story starts to come online right. and you start to see here's where the resistance was waged. Here's who fought back. Here's what we know about the, the here's what we know about these insurrections, many of which were not successful and I say successful like quote unquote like right, it's not necessarily right. like everyone got free but you know I still felt like there was a lot of success in that those people ended their slavery experience right one way or the other um, and some of the pieces they had in there you know the Harriet Tubman they had Harriet Tubman's Bible shawl. and shawl that and was I was just like again there's places where I just stood there like I just want to do a whole ritual I kind of did do just like whole <laughs> rituals. I was actually practicing some ancestral witchcraft. I did feel like I was just in touch with, right? I was like, you know, there's that song, there's this Christ, uh, Christian song, If I Could Just Touch the Hem of His Garment. Mm. Like I, Sam Cooke sings it, but the, the version I've heard. But I felt like that where I was just like, oh my gosh, like this is something you touched mm -hmm. and carried with you and you relied on and you made notes in and mm -hmm. you wore this around your body and it touched your skin and like it's right here it's right here inches <laughs> from me and so there was just a experiences like that and that ground floor where you start to see that we started to learn how to fight back we started to learn that um you know no one was going to naturally just stop doing this to us right and um, they also had the story, um, 
oh, what is the woman's name that inspired Beloved? Oh, I can't remember her name, but yes, they, they had the story and... I want to go back and find, yeah. I, it always, you know, it's interesting because I'm like this with anything that if I get introduced to it fictionally first, it becomes very difficult for me to then remember the actual name, even if I know it's based on a true story. Right, right. I'm just like, okay, but that was the story and they tell it and in the telling of that and being like, oh, okay, people were pushed to this level. And every time I mess with Beloved in any way, I'm like, and for context, this story is about a woman who was enslaved and who was basically driven to such desperation to protect her children that she ended up um, ending the life of her two twin. Well, she was trying to. She was attempting to end the life of her yeah. two twin children. To she killed them. one. She killed one and then was intervened on before killing the other. Yeah. And um, intervened on by... Um, people who intended to sell her children to slavery yeah and just thinking about it as someone who's like has children that I love in my life I'm like to me that story has always been the peak indicator of what the quality of life was for people who were enslaved Mm -hmm. right as I'm just like oh when death is better than life just I think that and like people jumping over slave ship Mm -hmm. you know just sort of like nope this is not worth continuing like I will or not do it or I don't want to give this to my child right no. or parents I think often of the stories of parents who um, run and have to choose which child to bring with them and yeah. have to choose to leave other children behind yeah um, and just the impossibility of those choices yeah. and I think it's interesting thinking about that inside of the like the story of insurrection that's being told at that point in the museum because yeah. I it's such an important lesson for us now that like I loved what you were saying about like insurrection um, success in quotation marks because yeah. I think like the evidence is really there that like no one was orienting to it, the idea of success yeah. inside of their resistance. Like That's no right. one was really or not no one but like the goal there was it wasn't like we're gonna have a goal setting process and set priorities around like what we're going to win right you know it was like in the nature of insurrection is um is creating chaos inside the system to make it dysfunctional so that other possibilities emerge and and there were so many I mean, and again, this is like part of the curation of the museum is that there were at every level of the museum, including in the initial level that's about the Middle Passage through um, the Revolutionary War, there's there's still even at that level, including stories of um, entrepreneurship, the story of maroon communities, the story of like all these folks who are figuring out ways to um, act in solidarity with other community, it, even inside of like racialization, you know, and, and the museum also sh- demonstrates really effectively how oh, yes, racialization, yes, yes. race itself as a concept is a direct response to various communities from various places in the world acting in solidarity with each other and in resistance to enslavement exactly. and like that's what causes race to be created right exactly. and constructed and 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 so 
and especially and so, because it was like, oh, white folks are working, they're indentured, they're going to be able to have, there's something different about y'all. We're going to create you, something different for we, them. Yeah, we yeah. have determined that you will not be able to ever have this freedom and you're black. Right? Exactly. <laughs> this whole idea too that it's like, Right now, I think we take for granted how connected we are and how we have this, like, a lot of people are in this country with a sense of America is something we have to attend to and we have to help it get correct and we have to help it be a good place. I also think the insurrection in that period of time, there was a, a different kind of capacity. People had to be like, we're not concerned with the American experiment. Right. Like, that's not anything that, that has nothing to do with us. We are caught up in this actually pretty small moment, right? As far as we know, we're here. We were on this one boat. We have now been sold to this one farm. We don't have a lot of contact with anyone else. We just have to figure out freedom, right? Right. Right. And so there's something about that that feels so powerful to me that I'm like, oh, folks with so many unknowns, the majority of their experience was an unknown experience. It was just like, we are in this suffering right now and we're going to band together. Who's going to be brave enough to band together to get us out of this situation right right now? And then out of that, oh, we may go into a maroon community that's with indigenous people. We may go into one of our own, but, and then that's the that was the life. Like that was right. pushing freedom, you know, down the line to the future. Right. And that was for so long. That was the other thing that kept striking me in that space. Is that, like we just kept coming around bend after bend after bend. Like of and then more the and more. Passed and da, exactly. Da, 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 da. Yes. And 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 it's fascinating too to think about to think about that like the relative isolation that people were in at the beginning of this and then the the revolutionary understanding that yes. that there was a broader scope of what was happening right. there and that defeating it involved creating this network right exactly. this network of people who were like working working on freedom yeah. and and again and they you know they have this whole piece of the museum that's really like looking at Harriet Tubman's history, looking at the Underground Railroad. I mean, you start to really see too inside of that, like both both how extraordinarily dangerous that work was and also yeah. how few people were even able to access it. Oh yeah. I mean it's just the numbers, just the sheer numbers yeah. inside of all of it, both the duration of time, the number of people who were enslaved the the transition from the transatlantic slave trade which you know ended in um in i believe it ended in the 17th century actually and you know and then there was this transition to yeah. you know it's no longer legal to trade slaves now we're basically just producing yes slaves, what we have right? here um so yeah, just the the numbers alone are staggering yeah um and then you have to keep moving right through the museum (laughs) and like I think the thing so this brilliant move that they made and I'm not sure I would love to hear sometime the thinking behind it I'm sure there's someone who will like give a great explanation but this experience you have of like you get to this point and you're like oh there's they, there's no bathroom for another two floors like we're still in this and I, I don't know but for me that was like none of your comfort is gonna come it's not you're not gonna get any comfort 
for relief. a long time, right? right? And so there, it was like this small thing, but it's a big thing to just be like, yeah, there's no relief, there's no rescue, there's no way out of this. Like, you're going to keep moving through this history. And I just appreciated that. Then it was like, yeah, and there's not a bunch of seats. There's not a bunch, you know, it's just like yeah. you can, you know, at the end of each floor, basically, there's like a ramp up to the next floor and there's like a place where you can kind of sit and still watch a movie about the ongoing struggle and suffering and the right. resistance, right. the fight back. And you start to come up into um, a period where it's like, okay, here's what black folks started to do where some were buying their freedom, some were creating businesses, some were um, pushing back politically, right? You start to come against, oh, Frederick Douglass is out here. Folks were like learning to read, learning to write, learning to communicate with each other. And this Underground Railroad Network is popping up. All this stuff is like, and the abolition movement is popping off. And really understand like abolition at that time. Because I think now it's one of the things I hunger for is like, a more purist abolition sensibility in more people who consider themselves to be anywhere on the spectrum of from progressive to radical. It's like right. to me, abolition just feels like it should be one of our core human values. Mm. And so it's so beautiful to see like, yeah, there were folks who even then who had been socialized completely as slave owner class who still were like, no, I am an abolitionist. Like I'm moved by these black people that I'm meeting who are, I'm able to see their humanity. They are articulating their humanity to me. And that felt so key too, that I'm like all along um, when, whenever people have tried to deny our humanity, we have asserted it and we have asserted it in such a compelling way Mm -hmm. that others are like, it's undeniable and I have to align with you. And even when those numbers were small, those small numbers made such a huge impact that we are able to land in the kind of solidarity that we're beginning, that we're practicing today, right? And that, that continued to show as we go up the floors of the museum. It's just like, oh, like it was never actually a huge, but it was moral center grabbing, right? Like yeah. it was just like enough people are being like, this is not this is not okay and we cannot continue to do this as humans. Right. 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 <laughs> um, and yeah. one of the interesting things about both that floor and all the other as we continued up is that like, you know, in the storytelling of it, they don't let anyone off the hook. So they, in the storytelling of the abolition movement, they really dig into the political philosophical differences between different abolitionists and who was, who was working in partnership with each other, who was beefing, who was beefing with each other, you know, and then they go on to do that, you know, when you get further up at the museum, like m- later into our history, um, there's a whole section that's really outlining the like political and philosophical differences between um, between these different leaders at different stages of of movements for justice. So there's the stage there's in the inside of the section of the museum that's about abolition. They're really demonstrating. Um, that there were philosophical differences between the abolitionist leaders, both like across racial lines and not across racial lines. Yes. And so they really showed you like who was working in concert with each other, who was beefing with each other, who was working in partnership with each other in spite of beef that they had together, exactly. but really saw each other as partners. And then later in the museum, um, there's this whole section about like the political and philosophical differences between W.E.B. Du Bois and Ida B. Wells, yeah. representing really different ends of the spectrum in terms of whether or not it was um whether or not it represented like political fortitude yes. to like 
work with white people or to try to work in the interests of white people. Yes. Right. And whether or not it made sense to um, center the needs and comfort of white people at in all. the struggle at all. Right. And I just, I just, again, really appreciate And Du Bois that was like, yes. And Ida B. Wells was, was like, like, hell, hell to the no. Um, hero. <laughs> um, and I mean, both heroes, right? Yes. Like, it's like, I think, I think one of the things that like the, the, the museum both like, doesn't let anyone off the hook, but also doesn't let like throw anyone under the bus either. Like it yeah. does a representation of like, these were genuine political differences that came from a genuine set of really different experiences. Like it's not, it's not an accident that yeah. like W.E.B. Du Bois is having like that political framework as a black man who yes. had access to a certain type of education and yeah. institutional privilege. And Ida B. Wells is like a black woman who's trying to work as a journalist who has having a whole different set of exactly. experiences and arrives at a different set of conclusions about what's necessary. So I totally did see that part. And I want to say that I got really deeply excited by the fact that they were teasing out these differences over and over again. They kept showing like, we've never been a monolith of people. There's never been a moment when we were all thinking one thought and actually part of what has helped us move forward as a people has been finding the ways to balance those tensions. Exactly. Like there's been times when we've been able to balance those tensions and somewhere in that tension, in that um, discourse, there's been a way forward, right? Yes. And I, you know, I think this c carries through as it starts to come up into, oh, everything is getting much more, much more, much more politicized. And, you know, by the time we get up to like the Malcolm Martin era, it's just like, yeah, this is what's, this is what being black in this country has been about is like some of us being like, we need a total revolution. We need to separate ourselves away from these people. We need to arm ourselves. We need to be at war because we are at war. And the other folks being like, no, we need to find a way to work with. We need to weave ourselves into, we need to call on the moral, um, the moral possibility of these people. Mm -hmm. Like I felt like, oh, that dynamic has always been there. It's still there. I think it will continue to be there. Mm -hmm. And and some of the strategic differences like insurrection versus institution building. Yes. Like and and then where those things run up against each other. Like there is a whole there's a long stretch of I think the second floor that's that's like post reconstruction era looking at the um, entrepreneurship of black people and the number of like small towns or small cities that were being developed as places that were like by for yeah. African-American people. And then what would happen if those towns reached a certain level of economic success? What would yes. happen? They would get burned down, right? Yes. Like they would get attacked by white yeah. militias. And so, you know, so then there's it's like the acorn challenge. I always think of exactly. that as like Octavia Butler was like, yes, mm -hmm. we go off, we create our community. They'll come for our community. We need a different option. We need a different <laughs> like, option. Exactly. Yes. exactly. Mm -hmm. And I want to speak to the Emmett Till um, Memorial because it's sort of it, you reach the end of the second floor and you come to this place where it was, I think, a 45-minute to an hour-long wait for that line. And um, and so just the choice of being like, okay, we're going to get in this line. like, mm -hmm. And there's no rushing. There's no one rushing you along as you go through the experience. Like you wait, you get there, and it's, a again, just like that there's floor. There's camaraderie in the line. There's deep camaraderie in the line. You're like, and we built relationships with multiple people in the line. Right. Um, very different people. You know, there mm -hmm. was that black woman who was a police officer. She's a corrections officer. Or correction, mm -hmm. corrections officer. And it's come down from 
um, New York where she lives just for the day, just for the museum by herself. Yes. And she was waiting in line in front of us. And we had a whole long conversation about like what is happening in this political context and how she views it as someone who works in corrections and how I view it. She had overheard me talking to our sister April and she turned to me and she was like, oh, are you a teacher? And I explained what I do. And then she explained what she does. And I was like, oh, okay. Yeah. And now yeah, we're in yeah. a conversation. <laughs> right. Well, and it was, I have to say that that was such a funny moment for me because I wasn't in the line with y'all. I was attending to my little arthritis knees. Mm-hmm. So I was waiting, uh, sitting down. And so when I came up, I just entered the conversation where she was kind of being like, oh, these millennials or whatever, kind of joking about that. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know she was a correctional officer. And I was like, oh, she seems like pretty cool. <laughs> right. Anyway, and then later I was I like... I also laugh at millennials. Right, I also... But then... <laughs> <laughs> well, or just the way they were behaving, which was very much like a lot of younger folks coming up to the line being like, what's this? Oh, no, I'm not doing that. Basically, <laughs> right. like, I was just like, wait, you have a chance to go to see this Emmett Till Memorial that is like approved by his family where like many important things have been offered up like Mm -hmm. you're you're gonna skip that that seems um like really short-sighted to me and so we were bonding over that um but then I could feel her social conservatism and in how she was talking about it and how it was coming up in other ways and so but I was like I didn't know that larger context so when you guys told me that later I was like "Uh (laughs) uh-huh I was like I can smell conservatism anyway so and then there were also just like whole families that were holding each other down in the line and like mm-hmm. trying to educate each other in the line about what we were about to see, yeah. which I thought that part of it was so incredible to me was seeing the multi-generational conversations that were happening in this space and hearing how like, oh, different people have different parts of all of these stories, yeah. which is, you know, our experience of family too. is like, oh, different people have different parts of each story. And that's our black experience is that we all have different pieces of the history, yeah. pieces of our own familial history. And so much of it is hidden from us. And so much of it we hide from each other because yeah. we're all sort of walking around with this sense of like, this is actually too painful for yes. all of us to know. Yes. And the museum felt like that over and over again. It's mm-hmm. like, this was the most painful part of what was happening during this time and then here was the most powerful part and I feel like that culminated with that Emmett Till Memorial because you know we know the story of Emmett Till Um, I'm sure that most people who listen to our podcast have seen the pictures know who this young man was but going into the space it's basically this um, it's like a small room with like a divider in the middle so you're like walk in and then you walk past the divider and there's Emmett Till's actual casket. And it's the original casket that they buried him in. I was standing there with like these little kids. Like it was like this family and like three or four little kids who you ended up becoming their bubblegum source for. I totally was. And it they was kept, like. They kept coming up to me asking me for gum. And one I was like, at a time kept coming up. We all need this right now. Exactly. <laughs> and it was this beautiful thing because they're like coming up and they're really young. But I'm like, they're not that much younger than he was, right? Mm -hmm. So it's like, what are they going to experience coming into this space? And they had like child's curiosity about it, right? So we come in, you move past this first divider, and there it is. And it's really set up as a casket the way it was set up at the funeral, where it's just like, Mm -hmm. and the way it is at, at a black funeral anyway, which is you come in, the casket is open, and you all walk up, you say goodbye to your loved one, you keep going, you sit down, there's a service. Mm-hmm. And the choice that his mom made, that that her child who had been brutally murdered and then left in, in the river for days 
and then pulled out that she had an open casket so that everyone would have to see what had been done to her child. Um, it, again, one of these moments where you're like, that is a, an, a choice at the moment of apocalypse that it's like, how do you know you can make that choice? How do you know to make that choice? Mm-hmm. Surely you can't imagine the political import that that choice will have. But but on some level she did You have know. to know. She had, like, I mean, and it's interesting because in that small gallery space, they really, it's as much her story as it is his story. Yes. And her complete clarity. And one of the things that she's talking about in in the in the quotes that they pull from the interviews that she did with Ebony magazine and other magazines at the time was the fact that as someone who was living in Chicago and raising her child in Chicago, she felt very disconnected from the concerns of Southern black folks Yeah, and felt like, well, that's happening down there Yes, and we don't have that life up here. And she had all of this anxiety about sending her son to stay with family yeah. in the South because she just thought of it as being so backwards. Yes. And so she talked about how his murder was a political awakening for her. Yes. And that is so fascinating and intense and awful and terrifying. That yeah. like, But that it galvanized her. Yeah. You know, that she... It's not like it's not just that her life was never the same because her son had been murdered. Her life was never the same because it fundamentally changed her relationship to her own blackness. Yeah. And and her relationship in solidarity to black people in the South. Exactly. That piece of it to me was just like, oh, this is what all of these mothers are going through now. Right. And I'm like, oh, this is Sabrina Fulton. This is all of these mothers who are experiencing their children being murdered and may or may not have been political the day before that happened and suddenly are thrust into a spotlight where their child's um, death is going to be a galvanizing moment for Mm -hmm. history. And they've still got to go through the grief and the rage of their loss. Yeah. This is Michael Brown's mother running for political office right now. Right now, which is amazing exactly um especially given what just happened in st louis and the with the buy bob campaign and them actually you know being like and you know i'm i have to say i'm like so proud of kayla because the we know the folks who actually created that campaign and pushed for that campaign to happen mm-hmm. and like the political landscape is changing and in this moment that landscape has changed because mike brown was killed mm-hmm. and in that moment it was emmett till was killed and this changed his political landscape and i was deeply moved by all of the talks, all of the conversations, all the interviews that she did, um, and how she just transmuted that grief into something that would would be available to Black people to use to move, yeah. to move forward, and to try to change the conditions. I was like holding your hand through the whole gallery, yeah. And that was the other interesting thing that, like, I was just like having the physical experience of like I need to be, yeah held on to and I need to be holding on to someone else yep. in order to walk through this space. Yeah. You know, especially as a parent and like, mm-hmm. you know, my oldest child is near the age that Emmett Till was when he was murdered. Yeah. Um, and just the, the way that, you know, we are all in this moment awake to the, yeah. The actual physical danger of yeah. raising children in a society that brutalizes children. Yes. Um, and won't hesitate to brutalize children yeah. in order to force 
the adults of a community to fall in line. Yeah. And I, th- I think about, too, that element of the story where, you know, Emmett Till had been out at that grocery store with his uncle, and then they had gone home, and the white men who murdered him came to his uncle's home. Yes. And took him away. Yeah. And what it must have, what that uncle must have lived with for the rest of his life that he no. couldn't stop it from happening. Yeah. Um, and that that was again one of those the the one of the conditions that black black folks were living under that we continue to live under the powerlessness of knowing that you can't stop white people from doing something horrifying to you i think about this in terms of the the police involvement that we experienced with siobhan's elementary school that she was in yeah um uh before the school that she's in now the when she was six years six old. years old um the elementary school that she was enrolled in called the police on her twice over the span of a month's time and in one case because she quote unquote ran away meaning she like stepped off of school grounds and another case because she was quote unquote threatening to run they called the police on her and i remember in i remember the like abject feeling of powerlessness in that situation to bring her home and to have her like huddled crying at the bottom of the stairs expressing how she felt to have her waking up in the middle of the night for the following two weeks and like Mm. experiencing like in caprices like she like it in terror she would wake up in terror and like shit her pants in the middle of the night yeah for for two weeks because she was, she had been so terrorized through this experience. Right. And, and then having to explain to the white people in the school what they had done. Yeah. And they didn't, they clearly didn't understand what they had done to her. Yeah. And, and I feel like that just so that the fact that we exist inside of a system where, we have to fight, we have to resist, and yet we also have to live with the reality that when the institutions of whiteness come for us. Yeah. We have not, and I think this we, is what- We can't protect ourselves or our loved or ones. Or our children. And I, I kept thinking this, like at every single level of the museum, and this is what I did, I didn't expect it, but every single level, I was just like, this is also still happening. This is now. Like yes. time, you know, I know Alexis taught us this thing and teaches us this thing. And I know we talk about time is nonlinear and it felt like a new understanding of that reality that I'm like, oh, these are years that are technically behind us, but time is nonlinear. This experience of suffering continues to happen. We continue to revisit it. And sometimes we revisit it with what appears to be more freedom or what appears to be more mobility or what appears to be more access, what appears to be a black president, what appears to be these things. Mm -hmm. And yet the actual conditions of power, the actual dynamics of power, it just is so consistent. White supremacy is so consistent and it's so clever Mm -hmm. in finding ways to reassert itself and reassert itself outside of our bodies or inside of our bodies. If we take it on as internalized racism Mm -hmm. and it was just so, um, uh, it was like a tireless just push to be like, this is what has, this is what it looks like when people 
are like, we'll just try. We'll be really good black people. We'll just try. Mm -hmm. Like, because that was the other thing about, you know, looking at Emmett Till is like, these were respectable black people. Like, these were folks who would have fit that bill. Exactly. And the resistance has also been consistent. And that is also nonlinear. That I, Mm -hmm. I kept thinking like, oh, sometimes we seem to think that we're doing things better than any revolutionary ever did them before, or we're more strategic now, or we're more something. Do we do goal setting and prioritization? Right, and I'm just like, (laughs) no. Like, there's literally nothing different. We're not more unified or solidified or smarter or any of those things. We are just the ones who are holding and pushing and visioning at this moment in time, Mm -hmm. just like our ancestors were doing at that moment in time. And we come up and we get pushed back and we keep coming up. And I just kept thinking like, we have not figured out how to break this cycle. And that, that, you know, I'm like, I'm working with some of the smartest people that I know, some of the most brilliant people that I believe to be alive today. And it just shows that it's not about any individual brilliance. It really is like the moments where the ball has been pushed forward Mm -hmm. down the line for us have been collective moments every single time. Every single time. And the brilliance is in, and I know that this is like, we're kind of like a broken record on this point, but like the brilliance is when inside that collective people know how to play their position. Yes. Um, I get, we are, we have been going for a long time, but I think we can't end this conversation without talking about Oprah because <laughs> the, because this okay, like, this is the what? So, <laughs> so great. my favorite thing. So, oh my God. so like the, <laughs> so the final, good. the final stages of the, and you know, obviously we're skipping a lot because you have to, because there's no way that we could even begin to encapsulate everything <laughs> that happened in this museum. But the final stretch of that third floor is, yeah. A celebration of blackness. Yes. And black modernity, as it were. Black modernity. Can I just say one thing is like, so all the emotions we've been feeling, like for me, at least from the ground floor up, I haven't necessarily cried. Like I felt teary eyed, but it's mostly been like deep kind of shocking emotion and like heavy emotion. And like, I don't know why, but I was just like, it even felt like, oh, I'm not done yet. I'm not, I can't cry. I can't even begin to cry right now because if I start to cry, for this, I will never stop. Right. But so I just was struck by that. So we come up to this level <laughs> and all of a sudden there's like Oprah's chair and like the dress that she wore on the last show. And then they got this video and it's just it's like an overview of her career. An overview of Oprah. And all of a sudden, Autumn and I are we're watching this video and we are bawling, bawling our eyes out. <laughs> like, we are just like, oh, my God, we love her so much. Oprah is so incredible. Like we both start crying. And I was like, are you crying? I'm crying right now. And it just is like. So the things about Oprah, I mean, like, first of all, you get to see, like, this is someone who was transformed in public. She started out, like, doing kind of just, like, talk show, whatever. And then she got she focused on, like, like, a morning show host with, like, yes. a white co-anchor. Exactly. And then she was like, you know, I'm going to do my solo thing. And, like, again, she kind of gives me the same feelings I get with Octavia Butler, where I'm like, here's someone who was not expected to jump these boundaries and to make these leaps Mm -hmm. and to be like, I'm going to take all of your attention, right? She's like, I'm not, I don't fit into whatever your molds are for who gets to be a leader and who gets to have your eyes Mm -hmm. and ears and your attention and who you're going to, like, bow down. And, like, yes, that's me. I'm that bitch, right? So you're just watching her. And then she's like, actually, I'm obsessed with transformation and they just kept showing like these moment and moment and moment and moment that she was like 
yeah, I'm talking to people who have HIV. Yes, I'm talking to LGBT communities. Yes, I'm talking, like, I was just like, she did so many breakthroughs. They show footage of the episode that she does. I'm like, do people remember that this happened? She did an episode of her show where every single person in the audience was a man who had survived sexual assault yes. as a child. Yes. And she has a moment in the show where I'm like gonna cry. I know. She has <laughs> like a moment that. in the show where she has all of them stand up and hold up a picture of themselves at as the age children. that they were when they were assaulted. And it's like she fucking did that. Exactly. And that was in like that was in the nineties or exactly. something. Do you know what I'm saying? Like that was a while ago. That was before and it was a, a conversation. conversation. Like when you think about that in relationship to Me Too. Exactly. Do you think about like it's been like thirty fucking years and we still don't have a handle on this exactly. conversation? Exactly. And she was like, I'm gonna do this. And she also did like she was like, here's a KKK family and here like she was I mean, she just kept doing these things where she was like, I'm not scared of any topic yeah. and I'm the one who will be able to I will hold these conversations like we will do yeah. this. I'm not scared of any of it. And I was just like, you know, when people now try to dismiss because it's like, oh, Oprah, like what is she like meditating in Hawaii or something? It's like, no, like she, she is. She deserves it. She that. absolutely is. <laughs> but it's also like she earned this whole journey. You yeah. know, like she's she's done this whole journey. Like she didn't start out with Super Soul Sundays. Like she started out with like, I'm going to break some ground. And also, you get a car. You get a car. You get a car. <laughs> like she was just like, I'm going to show what black wealth is, looks like. I'm going to show it. Which looks um, like redistribution. Which looks like redistribution. <laughs> and she was like shamelessly like, yes, white suburban mom, you get a car. It was, I mean, like there was something about it that she was just like, I'm going to change the positionality right, of right. of race and class in my life and how this is going to go down. Right. But anyway, so Autumn and I were standing there like bawling finally. And like, it was like, you know, the, re- the something that had been building up. So it was like a beautiful release. And by the way, this whole museum experience again, like April's the one who like, set this all up so she's doing this beautiful thing of sort of like checking on us checking on us (laughs) following behind us it's sometimes kind of leading but really just sort of like remaining on the edge of our experience yes and then at one point she was just like okay you guys are moving really slowly (laughs) which I appreciate (laughs) so I never got to see the upper floor so I'm gonna go so then like I think she left like right she left uh, right before the Emmett Till (laughs) thing because she was like I saw that and it's powerful you should absolutely see it I'm gonna run upstairs and I thought that was I thought it was great how she did it because she was like I'm your host I'm gonna make sure you get this and also Mm -hmm. like feel this like there's a lot here Um, and it just felt like such a good bonding experience for us to be like this is a a lineage that we all feel tapped into yeah Um, but then I also want to name that like the last thing that really moved me because it's like you're this black modernity thing is like coming up against the wall and it's like our lives matter and it's Alicia Garza and Mm -hmm. it's like oh yes like this is a part of our history now. Like this is maybe the, the, you know, it's not, it's like the most recent chapter that is at this level of history. And it was just exciting to think like, we're a part of this part of history. We're yes. a part of yeah. these chapters. Like we're, we're a part of right the next floor that's coming mm-hmm. of this history. And they're going to have to build we, a whole other level on the museum just, just for, for the movement moment hopefully that we're <laughs> in and we're a part of and I felt a very um sobering awareness of like we have 
the level of death and violence that all the other floors had. And we also have the resistance that the other floors had. Mm -hmm. We have the diversity of opinions of how we should be waging this resistance that the other floors had. And we have the dynamic tension that within that something will be moving forward. Right. And the commitment to love. Exactly. Deep commitment to love and deep um, practice of love at the familial level. Like we are changing who we are and how we are. Um, So all of that felt like so powerful to me. I'm really glad we went. I think everyone needs to see it. And the thing that happened the next day was that we did go to see Beyonce and Jay-Z in concert. And that bears its own storytelling, which we don't have time for now. (laughs) Thanks for listening to our show. (laughs) I love you. You're so We're on Twitter and Instagram at End of the World PC. We're also on Facebook at End of the World Show. You can make a sustaining donation to our show by visiting our page at patreon.com slash end of the world show. Another incredibly helpful thing you can do to help our show sustain itself is to write us a review on Apple Podcasts. If you are an iPhone person, thank you so much. How to Survive the End of the World is produced and edited by the beautiful Zach Rosen. Music for today's show comes from Tunde Alani Ron and Mother Cyborg. That shit is tight. I love you. I love you too. Black love. Black love. Hello, incredible, beautiful, wonderful listeners. I am recording this on my birthday and I turned 40. I've been on this planet for 40 years and I'm really, um, it's a day of like celebrating with a lot of people that I really care about from afar and some people really close and some people by video call. Um, But I wanted to take a moment and just say to each of you um, that I... I really love doing this podcast and it feels like a real gift to discover this before I turned 40, that this was a way that I want to be in relationship with the world um, and in relationship with Autumn. And I want you all to know that what you hear on the show um, between myself and Autumn and what we talk about between myself and the rest of my family, um, it's a gift. It's a huge gift to be this age and to feel um, this much deep solidarity from my family and deep love from my family across differences that are really quite vast. Um, and I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful that I was born into this particular family and into these, this set of relationships. And, and then I'm really grateful that I was born as a writer. I, I think that you can develop a lot of skills, but I think there's some things that just come And for me, I know that I was born as a writer and born as a facilitator. And those two things, those two gifts have been the place where my art and my science and like my learning and my passion um, has centered and centered and centered my whole life. And I I hope that I get to have a long life of doing both of those things. Um, And I just can't believe I made it to 40. (laughs) Um, I wanted to share with you a couple of things that feel really exciting as I move into this next decade. One is that I feel so much permission to reclaim my magic. Um, I think that having spent a lot of time um, at births, supporting births, and with young children, I feel like magic is um, something that we each get. 
gifted and then I think it slowly gets whittled away and if we're not lucky if we don't have adults around us who protect it um, it becomes very very hard to continue to access it as we get older um, and we can just find ourselves like living within these unmagical boxes and I feel like part of my work is to generate magic turn on magic light up magic and I feel like a big gift is to feel like a lot of permission to just wield wield what I have and I, I hope to do that well um, I think the other thing is you know people keep saying like this is when you start to give no fucks all your fucks are gone all this stuff about the the absence of of you know an accumulation of fucks and I really have felt that coming for a long time um, but I do feel it's a it's kind of a different it's a reframe which for me is just sort of like I feel a lot of freedom like a lot of freedom to be exactly who I'm supposed to be in this world and it's not you know I'm just not a the kind of person who in you know I might say I give no fucks but I'm not really that kind of person I'm really the kind of person who like I give a lot of fucks I care about so many things and I I love that I can still get passionate about so many things and that I've been gifted um a life like I, I was born at a time when I could pursue my passions, pursue the things that actually matter to me and are interesting to me, the things that I give a fuck about. I can spend my time working on those things. And so it feels more like that. Um, not that I will give no fucks, but that I'm like, I really get to like only give my fucks to the things I really, really care about. And so I'm spending most of this month writing and reading and I'm working on um, two more projects finalizing an Ursula Le Guin reader and a little tiny book on facilitation that feels like it wants to come through and that's all I want to do and that's what I'm going to do um, and then do this podcast and be with y'all and talk to Autumn and live my life so happy birthday to me I love all of you I felt your love today thank you so much and onward and onward and onward.